Hello, it's me tonight, and Sean is doing the Q&A. I thought we'd turn it around a bit, you know. Chris still hasn't got any broadband, and he's very busy doing press TV. He does a show on their Palestine Live. Might be Palestine Unsubscribed or something like that. Anyway, sorry, Chris, I don't recall what your show's called. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking to Rod Driver again about ele his elephants in the room. It's his blog, and he, I'm sure that Gaz will be putting the link up any minute now, or Sean will. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the war industry uh, across the world. We know ourselves how far, we, how, how much we rely on the income well we think we rely on the income from selling weapons to any available you know people that want to want to shoot other people and kill them um or bomb them or chemical weapon them um so tonight we're going to be talking about the the history of uh the the war industry and what it means today in ukraine so can we bring rod in please Lizzie, Rod's just lost, lost audio, Rod. so he's just logging lost. out and logging back in. <laughs> We've lost Rod. Right, okay. So it's just me then. So I shall tell you that uh, a few years ago I interviewed um, Professor Ron Smith from Birkbeck University, London. And he was he's an economist, and he was telling me about the fact that actually we don't make any money we pay it all out in subsidies so we subsidize saudi arabia buying our weapons we do employ about 150,000 people in the uk in the in the weapons industry um so when you think of the population of the country is what 67 million or thereabouts uh 150,000 people being employed total in the weapons industry in the UK. So that's not a lot of people that are earning a living from it. Plus, they're all on zero hour contracts and they're, they're all working as hard as they can just to stay, keep their head above water. So they're not profiting from it. So who is profiting from it? Well, nobody really. Well, it's just the, the war manufacturers. So the shareholders of the companies that create, that make the weapons. So the, the workers in those places aren't making any money. Um, the, the, the country isn't getting any tax money because we heavily subsidise the weapons industry. We also pay the insurance for the transportation of the weapons. So it, it's quite scary, really, that, that we, we are in bed with Saudi Arabia specifically, uh, as was the case with that, that Professor Ron Smith was discussing was that uh, we are we are totally beholden to Saudi Arabia because um, we we supply weapons for them to to bomb Yemen uh, to to bomb wherever else they want to bomb and now how many of our weapons are in the Ukraine how many do you reckon looks like we've got Rod back. Hello, sorry about that. That's um, all right. I'll just give you, I was just telling the audience about um, Professor Ron Smith, who's an economist, who said that um, we don't have, we don't actually make any money out of the weapons. Um, we, we just, 
we just like to create weapons and we like to bomb people. And I was going to just pass on to you to say, how do we do, how do we get, do we get weapons? Do we supply weapons to anyone in the Ukraine? I know that we used to supply Russia with weapons. We do supply the Ukraine. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll uh, come to Ukraine at the end. I think that's a good way of sort of rounding up to tonight's presentation. So uh, shall I make a start? Yes, please. Okay, so tonight we're talking about... Go ahead. Tonight we're talking about the, the global uh, weapons trade, and that's particularly relevant at the moment uh, as weapons are pouring into Ukraine, uh, fueling the, uh, the war there. So uh, most of what I'm going to talk about is a sort of general overview, and then we'll, we'll do Ukraine at the end. So there's two things that we're going to talk about. One is the sort of total expenditure of, of weapons, and then there's the, the international trade. And we're going to look at the different groups of reasons why it is so large and why it is so corrupt, criminal, and unethical. So the total uh, expenditure all over the world on weapons is estimated to be approximately 1.8 trillion US dollars. So it is an absolutely enormous uh, industry, one of the largest uh, in the world. Now, of that expenditure, approximately one third of that is spent by the United States. It is easily the biggest spender on its military, far, far higher than any other country. And the international trade in weapons is estimated to be approximately $100 billion. So only a small fraction of the total, but still it's a very, very big international trade. So again, the Americans are the biggest sellers internationally. And Britain is also very high up. Sometimes it's the second highest uh, trader of weapons. Sometimes it's a bit lower down. It varies a little bit from, uh, from year to year. So there's three groups of reasons why this uh, is as it is. Firstly, selling weapons to other countries helps our politicians and our leadership stay friendly with leaders overseas. In particular, it cements relationships with foreign military leaders. It helps keep leaders in power when they're using their weapons to fight against neighboring countries or to fight, uh, often to fight against their own people. And in some cases, it helps get military people into power uh, in the first place. And Britain has a quite a, a track record of that sort of thing. The second group of reasons that uh, the industry is so large is that it's actually one of the most corrupt and secretive, but also unaccountable industries in the world. Even when we find somebody doing something wrong, something criminal, nothing's done about it. And the final issue is to look at the political influence of weapons companies, which is something that even American presidents have criticized for many years. So I'll work through those uh, in the next 20 minutes or so. So if we look at the role of Britain and America, uh, a great deal of what we do overseas is keeping repressive governments in power. These are governments that murder and torture their people. So very famous examples that we've talked about in earlier presentations would include the government of Indonesia, where a dictator called Suharto committed genocide uh, on two occasions. We supplied him with loads of weapons. Also in countries like Colombia, where the government represses large parts of their population. 
uh, we supply them with lots of weapons. So in fact, there was a British study in 2006 carried out by one of the weapons uh, NGOs, the non-government organisations that uh, analyse the weapons industry and campaign against it. And under British law, we have a concept which um, is known as countries of concern. So this is governments that are using, that are currently repressing their populations or fighting against uh, other countries. And under our own laws, we're not supposed to sell weapons to countries of concern. So this would include countries like uh, Egypt and Nigeria at different points in time. Well, in that 2006 study, it turned out that Britain was selling weapons to 19 out of 20 countries of concern at the time. And more recent research has shown that this is still very much the case, that we pretty much ignore our own laws. Now, uh, we're very lucky in the UK that we have one of the leading experts on the weapons trade uh, living here. He's a man named Andrew Feinstein, who used to be part of the South African uh, government. And um, he says that he has never come across a weapons deal that is not somewhat illegal. Now, that fascinates me because if you watch the media, you'll notice they always make a distinction between the legal weapons trade and the illegal weapons trade, that they're always trying to say that what our government does and what the American government does, what British Aerospace and other major weapons companies do, well, that's all meant to be legal. And then some other naughty people somewhere do illegal weapons deals. But in fact, Andrew Feinstein is saying actually every weapons deal is at least somewhat illegal. Now, in order to cover up the criminality of these weapons deals, what we do is we send them via other countries or islands. So it can be the Cayman Islands, it can be the Channel Islands, it can be places that have no militaries. And the weapons go, or the paperwork shows the weapons going in the first instance to these islands, and then they will go on to some other unnamed destination. And clearly what we're doing is selling weapons to countries that we should not be selling weapons to. And we're hiding the paper trail because uh, the, the weapons companies and our government know that these sales uh, are illegal. So there were some famous examples of this. In the 1990s, um, a British company was actually selling weapons to Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, who was trying to build a super gun. And uh, this uh, this did actually make the mainstream press one of those rare occasions when the mainstream press actually picked up on the criminality of uh, British weapons companies. And then in America, perhaps even more famously, in the 1980s, they had what was called the Iran-Contra affair, which uh, involved very senior people in the American government. And they set up a network of fake companies, offshore accounts, and they sold weapons to the Iranian government, and then they used the money then to fund the group of people in Nicaragua called the Contras. So these were basically terrorists who were trying to overthrow uh, the government there. Um, so there's a great deal of illegal activity that is actively supported by the British and American governments in the weapons trade. And it's important to understand that often when we sell weapons, uh, a politician or a bureaucrat will come forward and say, oh, well, we're just selling that airplane as a trainer. It, it, has no, um, it has no military use. It's just used for training uh, pilots. But then at the same time, we also supply all of the components and all of the weapons necessary to turn that airplane into, say, a ground attack airplane. So all of these promises about the future purpose or the future use of these uh, weapons is complete nonsense. All of the politicians and all the companies know 
that these weapons can be used for quite brutal military purposes. There was a big study some years ago looking at global corruption, and they concluded that 40% of all international corruption is in the weapons trade. Now, that's pretty astonishing. In various other uh, presentations, I've said that uh, the banking system is one of the most corrupt industries in the world. American banks have been fined $300 billion dollars in the last 20 years. That's an astronomical amount of money. The pharmaceutical companies are also incredibly corrupt, but the weapons trade perhaps are even more corrupt than any other industry. And this level of corruption affects both buyers and sellers. It really does um, sort of distort the way uh, people involved think about the world. So there have been a number of uh, famous examples. So in Britain, there was um, a very large weapons deal to the Saudi Arabian government, which was named the Al Yamamar deal. And in total, approximately six billion pounds of bribes were paid. That's not the size of the contract. That's the size of the bribes. So the contract was much, much bigger. So this was a huge contract selling lots of very sophisticated weapons to the Saudis. Immense bribes paid to the Saudis. But then some of that money came back as kickbacks to senior people in British aerospace. And so, in fact, the head of British aerospace was given two very expensive flats in Mayfair as a kickback. Now, when the, the police, the Serious Fraud Office, attempted to investigate the, uh, the bribery and corruption involved in this deal, the British government stepped in and blocked the Serious Fraud Office from investigating. So you, you, it becomes very clear that this, um, this is not sort of companies acting kind of independently and hoping they'll get away with it. This is companies acting with the active support of the British, American, French and other governments in advanced nations in committing extraordinary levels of, uh, of crime. So uh, Andrew Feinstein also studied a major um, arms deal between Britain and the South African government, which is called the ANC, the African National Congress, of which he was a part. And in that deal, there were, it's a smaller deal than the Saudi one, but there were bribes of approximately 300 million pounds paid to people in South Africa to sort of lubricate that deal. And Andy talks uh, in detail about this uh, case, and he does presentations on the internet if anyone's interested. Uh, where he, he goes into a lot of detail. But in this particular case, the Queen, the British Queen, actually uh, invited the six South African ministers who were responsible for weapons purchases to dine with her aboard her yacht as a, a kind of a small form of bribery to help the weapons deal go through. So it becomes quite clear that our politicians and either even our royalty are actively part of the weapons trade and they are actively actually part of a highly corrupt weapons trade now after this uh, anc deal went through so south africa ended up with loads of weapons this included military jets that have never flown they've never had the pilots they don't actually have any serious enemies to use these weapons against there was never any need to buy all of these weapons and lots of people in south africa were saying why are we buying all these weapons we don't really need them and so there have been lots and lots of attempted prosecutions of the leader at the time in South Africa, Zuma. Um, but in, in total, 700 prosecutions, but all of them were dropped. And uh, 
Andy points out that the ANC has been engulfed in corruption ever since. And it was investigated over here, but all that happened was that British Aerospace received a, what for them is a tiny fine of half a million pounds, which is clearly not enough to deter them from getting involved in very, very corrupt deals uh, in the future. And you start to realise, when you analyse the weapons trade, it, it really makes you realise that Britain and America, whatever our politicians and bureaucrats might say about human rights, they couldn't care less about human rights. So uh, America and Britain quite actively tried to avoid international conventions or treaties um, which would limit uh, their ability to sell weapons. So, for example, uh, lots of people a few years ago tried to stop international sales of landmines. Well, Britain wanted to carry on selling landmines, so it just relabeled them as cluster munitions, and it was selling to Saudi Arabia, selling cluster munitions as recently as 2016. So what happens is that Britain and America don't ratify international treaties, or they find loopholes or clever use of words to, to pretend that a treaty does not apply to any particular deal. Okay, so the final area that I'm going to focus on is the relationship between the weapons companies and the government. And in fact, there was a famous statement by the US President Eisenhower back in 1961, who said, we have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportion. We must not fail to comprehend its grave implication. In councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Now, that is that was 60 years ago, but in fact, the military-industrial complex, which means a very close relationship between the military, the creation of weapons, and government policymaking, is what we now have, in, but especially in America, but also in Britain, unfortunately. Uh, so uh, various studies have been carried out, especially in America. Approximately a quarter of American Senators and Congress people have shares in weapons companies. And then there's a huge revolving door between the American military and weapons companies. And fairly recently, one study found that 84% uh, of US generals went to work for weapons companies when they retired. So five generals out of six, when they retired, they go to work for weapons companies. But in fact, the revolving door also works in the other direction. So lots of senior government officials actually come from weapons companies. And of course, their, their role once they're a government official is to influence policy. And as we've seen in the last 20 years and before that, America is a very war-prone country. And these are not accidents. It's because they understand that many of their most powerful lobby groups, and this includes the weapons companies, will benefit from war. And one researcher actually said it's impossible to tell whether government ends and Lockheed begins. So Lockheed is one of the biggest American weapons companies. So, in fact, what you find is that people end up with almost simultaneous roles. They're advising government, but they're also working uh, for these weapons companies. And then if you look at, uh, at the UK, we had the situation where the former prime minister, Tony Blair, was actively involved on a personal level in selling weapons to India, Saudi Arabia and Zimbabwe. And so, again, it's impossible to separate his role as a weapons company salesman um, from his role uh, in, uh, in government. 
Now, this influence has all sorts of uh, sort of strange outcomes. So weapons companies are forever trying to create ever more complex and expensive uh, weapons systems. Uh, but many, many experts have said, well, look, many of these, these weapon systems actually have no real military purpose. So very uh, going back a few years uh, during the Cold War, so this was when the Soviet Union still existed and both Russia and America had enormous numbers of, of nuclear missiles, which is still the case today, but uh, they, they were involved in what was called, called the Cold War. The Americans built something called the MX missile, and every expert said, well, listen, there's no need to have an MX missile. Our existing nuclear weapons, we've got so many of them, they're just fine. We don't need them. But in fact, um, the, the American government did allow uh, the MX missile, missile to be developed and deployed. And then more recently, there's three that people have picked up on in uh, research. One is called the Seawolf submarine. Another is called the V-22 tilt rotor aircraft, which you see in the movies quite a lot because it can take off like a helicopter and then it it uh, it can rotate, tilt the rotors and then fly like an aircraft. And then um, their, their um, top of the line military jet is the F-35. And lots of people have said, look, these... These weapons, are, they fail their tests all the time. The V-22 is notorious for crashing and killing people. They cost trillions of dollars in total, uh, and yet the government goes ahead and purchases these things. And all of the 10 biggest weapons companies have a long history of actually defrauding the American government. And in a particularly notorious incident, one of those companies was charging the U.S. government $2,000 just for a nut, like in a nut and a bolt. Uh, which should have cost a few cents. So there's there's a great deal of sort of internal fraud going on and um, cronyism going on between the government and the weapons companies. So it becomes very clear that there are no ethics in the weapons trade. So uh, many countries will sell weapons to both sides. Uh, the most obvious place where this happens in in the world today would be in India and Pakistan, who have had a dispute over uh, a region uh uh, between the two countries known as Kashmir and, and Britain and America happily sell weapons to uh, to both sides. And if you look at uh, what's been going on recently, um, the news occasionally talks about Saudi Arabia attacking uh, Yemen and causing immense destruction there. And um, uh, there's a huge number of migrants uh, from Yemen. But in fact, that assault by the Saudis on Yemen could not happen without all of the weapons that are supplied primarily by America, Britain, and France. In fact, that war is best thought of as an American-led war using Saudi Arabia sort of as a proxy army. But Britain and America have specialists to keep all the weapons working, and we also have a few military specialists who are fighting uh, in Yemen. So we are very much part of that war. Another point worth mentioning is that once weapons have been sold, it's impossible to know where they'll eventually end up. So during the 1990s, the CIA, that's the US intelligence organization, supplied approximately $11 billion of weapons to the fighters in Afghanistan. We used to call them the Mujahideen, and they were fighting against the Russians. Well, uh, over time, Afghanistan pretty much disintegrated. It had no sort of functioning government. For long periods of time. Those weapons are now spread all over Asia uh, and the Middle East. More recently, Britain, America and France have destroyed Libya and the weapons that Libya 
used to own and control. They've now been looted. And again, they've spread all over uh, the regions and they can be used by terrorists and they can be used by anyone who can get their hands on them. And in particular, what a number of researchers have noted is that frequently our own weapons will actually be used against our own soldiers in situations where they're working with the UN as peacekeepers. So this was noted in Somalia, in Bosnia, and in uh, Rwanda. And in fact, there's a very famous example um, for British people. Some of the uh, older viewers will remember that in 1982, Margaret Thatcher fought against the Argentinians over the Falkland Islands. Now, the Argentinians had weapons from Belgium, Germany, America, and even from us, because all of these advanced nations had supported the Argentinian military dictatorship, which was murdering and torturing its population, was hated by most of its population. But we, we helped get them into power, and we helped keep them in power. Uh, and one particularly famous weapon that got discussed a lot in the press, the press was that the French supplied an anti-ship missile, which is called an Exocet, and it did cause immense damage to British uh, military ships during that, that war. Um, and so there's a sort of something that's sort of fairly obvious is that a military government like the, um, uh, the dictatorship in Argentina, which was there from 1976 until 1982, would have found it much harder to take power if Britain and America and France and so on had not been supplying them with weapons in the first place. In fact, it seems highly likely that they would never have been able to take power in Argentina without our weapons. And so that's one example of us helping a military dictatorship uh, into, uh, into power. But it's not the only one. There are lots of others. So the writer Naomi Klein uh, wrote about the concept of disaster capitalism a few years ago, and she's realized that what started out as the military industrial complex has rather expanded somewhat. So companies see opportunities for profit uh, everywhere. So it's not just weapons companies, but it's owning healthcare companies to treat the wounded. It's owning reconstruction companies for rebuilding in countries that we've blown up. It's owning and controlling security companies, either to operate doing security work out in countries that we've been attacking, or to do security at home because uh, the, the threat of terrorist attacks is, is hyped up and so on. So there's more and more opportunities for big companies to make profit out of war and fighting and, uh, and destruction. And what people realized last year when the Americans did a partial withdrawal from Afghanistan is that the Americans have created what you might call a, a permanent war economy, that in fact, a lot of money was being spent, particularly by America, but by many other advanced nations in Afghanistan. But hardly any of it was going to try to create a stable country and a stable government. In fact, it was going into the pockets of all the private contractors uh, who were uh, helping our militaries uh, in Afghanistan without actually doing anything particularly useful in the long term uh, in Afghanistan. So there are lots of people who benefit from a permanent war economy. So I would have said there are actually no good arguments supporting huge weapons expenditures. So in fact, uh, as uh, Lizzie was pointing out at the beginning, that many of our exports to other countries are actually subsidized by our own government. 
So the profits we make from those weapons are not necessarily very much, if at all, in some cases. But we can't know if a country that we supply weapons to now is going to be our ally in the future. Uh, so who knows what's going to happen in many of the countries that we've been selling uh, weapons to. Uh, so in the past, we sold weapons to Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and then we invade Iraq and destroy the country and so on. And so these weapons end up getting, getting used all over the place. Now, I'm perfectly happy with people to make the argument that if we have a military at all, we should have the best, uh, ideally defensive weapons that we can possibly get our hands on. But in the case of Britain, uh, in fact, Britain and America don't really do defense. We only do offense. So although we use terms like the Department of Defense and the Defense Industry, in fact, it really should be the offense industry and the Department of Offense. So it used to be called the War Office, which is what it is. So there's no evidence that anyone is, is likely to attack either Britain or the United States in the foreseeable future. These weapons that we have only really exist to enable us to attack other countries. Uh, now, I, every now and again, I discuss these things with other people and they say, yeah, but aren't wars good for technology development? And there is some truth in that. You know, the technology of aeroplanes really leapt forward during World War I and, and World War II. So that is definitely true. But I think actually we could probably find ways to fund uh, research without actually having to fight uh, lots of wars. So I'm not sure that, again, that's a convincing uh, argument. So if we just bring this right up to date, looking very briefly at what's been going on uh, in Ukraine, um, there's some very good researchers at a website that I've mentioned before called Declassified UK. And they've written a recent article explaining that very sophisticated British anti-tank weapons uh, have been seen uh, being used by uh, the soldiers in Ukraine. And America also, for some years now, has been supplying very sophisticated anti-tank weapons and other uh, missiles. Uh, so some people will have heard of the term Stinger missile and so on. These are very sophisticated anti-aircraft weapons. So Britain and America are actively fueling the war in Ukraine by supplying lots of weapons uh, to the region. And as we've mentioned in previous presentations, what we should be aiming to do is to persuade everyone to sit down around a negotiating table and come up with a peaceful solution in Ukraine. And for the West to supply weapons to the Ukrainians is only going to uh, increase the intensity uh, of the fighting. It's going to make it last longer. It's going to be more brutal. Uh, more people are going to die and so on. So supplying weapons uh, is, is the last thing that anybody should be doing. Uh, in that uh, conflict. Uh, okay, so that's probably quite a good opportunity to uh, open up for uh, some discussion. Is there anyone else still in the room? <laughs> yes, we're all still here. We were just just engrossed in what you were saying. Um, there are lots of questions which we should get to in a bit. Um, first of all, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, as always said, war always ends with discussions of peace. Why don't we start wars with discussions of peace instead? Absolutely. I mean, it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? That. Um, but then know. the weapons industry wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have 
you know, yachts and uh, all the all the all the accoutrements of a good life that they have, all the shareholders in these companies. They do extraordinarily well out of the way the world works at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. And I was reading earlier that um, assault weapons and two military helicopters went missing um, as soon as we left Afghanistan. <laughs> so I don't know where they are, but they're in Afghanistan somewhere being used by somebody. And what what made me giggle, really, was the Ukrainian tractors um nicking all the tanks <laughs> nicking i've all missed the this you'll tanks. have to explain it to me i've missed this about the ukrainian tra tractors <laughs> well the ukrainian tractors the farmers um apparently the russians went in and um most of their equipment wasn't really very good so um it didn't work and things like this so they had to get towed by tractors <laughs> and yeah. um and then once in a while, the farmer would take the take the tank off uh, to his farm, I suppose, yeah. for spare parts for his combine harvester or something. Well, so, so I think we have to be a little bit careful about um, information coming out of Ukraine, that there will be a great deal of propaganda on all sides. No, there and, will be. Uh, but in, in terms of the weapons, it's worth mentioning this. In, certain, in terms of people saying, oh, Russian weaponry is kind of old and unreliable and breaks down, blah, blah, blah. In fact, we've had reports from um, uh, people from other countries who've gone to Ukraine to try to participate in this war and witnessed lots of other people volunteering to do the same and getting killed very quickly because the Russians are using very sophisticated um hypersonic missiles from long range which appear to be very very accurate and they've destroyed nato training bases in the west of ukraine so i think we should take any claims about um russian tanks breaking down and being towed by tractors with a with a pinch of salt i i didn't i didn't mention drones uh drones and missile attacks specifically because um, I think that the technology has moved on so much from tanks that really the tanks that are in service still are from the Cold War times or the Second World War even, perhaps. Uh. So, and there was one hilarious picture of a tank that had been overturned in the middle of a road. And um, it, the, the meme it, it said that uh, the tanks... Are, pretending to be dead so that <laughs> so the drones don't notice them <laughs> so right well i think there are a lot of questions but i think most of them are you've covered already should we bring sean in have we got any questions that you've noticed Hi. Um, yeah, just a bit of housekeeping before we, we go to some of the questions. Most people are just um, engrossed, as always, in what Rod has to say and making comments, really, um, about what what is happening um, and, and also about the military industrial complex um, being it's a, it's a it's a capitalist construct, isn't it? Um, it's all about making money, um, you know, making profit off off the backs of war which we know always affects the most vulnerable and the poorest people um, in the countries that this is happening in, um, which is, well, there's just no words for it. It's just 
disgusting. It is. Um, so just a bit of housekeeping. We've not got many likes on the page, so um, it does really help with our algorithms. Um, if you if you can't afford to uh, make a donation to us uh, to help us um, expand our channel and to keep going, um, then you can just share this. We you know. It's, it's brilliant if you can share what we do, if you can um, hit that thumbs up, that like button, that will help the algorithms on YouTube um, to show our channel to more people. Um, so please hit the like button. Um, if you're new here, please consider subscribing to us. It means the world to us to be able to get out our information uh, to people. Um, you know, we're not the mainstream media. We are trying to help people and um, educate people um, in, an, in, a, in a balanced manner. Um, that's what we do here, uh, not like the BBC or uh, the other mainstream media channels. Um, so thank you to everybody who's joined us this evening. Um, please do share it with your friends and your family. Um, you never know, people might learn something. So we have um we, we just have a, a few comments really. Um one from Emily Morton. Um she says so far the UK have sent four thousand NLAW anti-tank missiles to the Ukraine. Um and uh, she says that the UK have been selling de decommissioned weapons to Ukraine for the past five years at least. Um have you got any? Comments yeah, before on that, that they were selling they were selling them to Russia before that, but then they stopped selling them to Russia. <laughs> so the NLAW are the um, the very modern anti-tank weapons that I was talking about. So they're the ones that were identified by the the people at Declassified UK as the ones that we've been um, supplying. And um, in fact, this the whole thing about the weapons trade is a really international business. So. Um, one of the things that had concerned the Russians prior to the invasion was the fact that Turkey has been selling very sophisticated drones to the Ukrainians, and they are they have been used in eastern Ukraine. And one of the reasons that the Russians are fighting is because eastern Ukraine is a predominantly Russian-speaking territory, and so they're trying to protect the people in that region against uh, quite brutal attacks by the extremists uh, on the side of the Ukrainian government. And so you, you realize there's weapons being supplied by so many different countries. And uh, it's, it's partly about uh, profit and it's partly about this relationships between leaders in different countries trying to cement uh, relationships. But I think there's something you, you, you said uh, just when you came on, uh, Sean, which is about how it's all about capitalism, it's all about profit. I think the weapons industry, along with things like the tobacco industry, are kind of shining examples of the, some of the worst aspects of capitalism. And you start to realize that although other industries are not quite the same as selling weapons that blow people up and kill people and maim people and so on, in fact, the profit motive, which is what shareholders are interested in, and the profits and executive pay, which is what the senior executives are interested in, is the same sort of principle in the weapons industry and the tobacco industry as it is in all other parts of the capitalist system. And so this is why the banks are so corrupt and the pharmaceutical companies are so corrupt and the mining companies are so corrupt that actually there is nothing to stop them getting away with very unethical and frequently criminal 
behavior. And often uh, in all of these cases, they are assisted by very corrupt governments from advanced nations, our own government, the American government, the French, and so on. And so this shows very clearly that the most powerful players, this is both in business and in governments, have no interest in the rule of law, in ethics, in being held to account, and so on. They are simply in it for profit uh, and power, which is what all of these presentations are about. I do yeah, definitely. Go on, Lizzie. I, I have a question from somebody on Unity News. Um, the Department of Defense, it, it both sells the weapons and regulates the industry. Is that correct? Well, I'd actually have to study whether the Department of Defense actually regulates the, the industry in any meaningful sense. So this is one of the problems, uh, that we have what we call regulators in other industries, but in fact they don't properly regulate. They're essentially working on behalf of the um, of the companies. In the case of the Department of Defense, it probably is the case that the, the US government has rules against selling to specific overseas, specific countries. So that would include countries that are designated enemies of the United States. So that would be North Korea, Iran, quite possibly Russia. And I don't know what the relationship with China would be uh, in terms of weapon sales. And so on. I suspect that would be uh, these days on a list that they couldn't sell to. Uh, and so they do actually try to impose some fines on companies that do those sales. But um, there's so much underhand stuff and there's so much sort of smoke and mirrors, as we saw with things like the Iran-Contra uh, thing, where they were selling to Iran, which they weren't supposed to be doing, and then they were trying to overthrow a government in Nicaragua and so on, again, which is stuff they shouldn't have been doing. They, they don't really... Um, apply their own laws if the people concerned are powerful enough. And that would apply to all of the major uh, weapons companies. Uh, so we've essentially got a tier of people who are the most senior people in the government, and the most senior people in the biggest companies who are pretty much above the law. Uh, and so whatever regulations might exist in theory, uh, they can be bypassed much of the time. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, let's go back to some more questions. Uh, Diana says, we can't have technological progress without killing people. Uh, so I don't see any re reason why that has to be the case. <laughs> so one of the things that I mentioned in the presentation is that people often make the point that wars have been absolutely amazing for certain aspects of technological pro progress. And there's no doubt about that. That is true, you know. But uh, we can we make progress in lots of other fields without there being fighting in those fields and without there being brutality. There's no reason why any one technology is necessarily dependent on us fighting wars. We're still perfectly capable uh, of doing doing the wars without the research. Sometimes you 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 might have to find other motives to persuade people to provide the funding for certain types of research if there wasn't a war involved. Uh, then uh, our development, let's say, of um, rocket systems, which began right at the end of World War II, and now we have rockets that take satellites into space and so on. That might never have happened uh, if there hadn't been rocket developments at the end of World War II. Uh, but if, if people had decided they wanted to put satellites in space, it would have been easy enough to fund uh, rocket technologies uh, you know, for other reasons. 
I, I sometimes wonder if uh, we'd, we'd actually have any wars if we, if we actually put the prime ministers or the presidents um, in the ring together and let them fight it out, um, because I suspect there wouldn't be. Um, you know, that's they're a, not the people laying their lives on the on the line, are they? So that's a really good point. It's not specific to weapon sales, but in, in terms of wars in general, if you look at who makes up the bulk of most armies, uh, and the people have documented this a great deal in the United States, that the recruiters have to go to deprived areas to yeah. recruit people who have very few other opportunities in life, and they they make all sorts of um, persuasive arguments saying you will fund you going to uh, university and we'll fund this and we'll fund that and so on. And so often I think a lot of people feel they don't have any choice. And if you look at the history of um, people like George Bush and so on, you realize that people who are related to senators and other rich and powerful people, they find ways to avoid uh, going to other countries to fight wars. If they are drafted at all, which is what used to happen in America, then they go to a safe unit and they they serve their time back in the United States and so on. So they never see the front lines. So it is very much the case that the, the decision makers don't actually see or experience the consequences of their actions most of the time. That yeah. was a that was a question that was related to that. The um the question of are there any countries on the planet that have done away with their military armies, etc.? So that's a great question. And it's something I've been meaning to look up because every now and again, when I'm researching this, I come across something that says the uh, the government of Costa Rica got rid of its military, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. But I'd, I'd ha I have to research that uh, in more detail just to check that that's true. So uh, there's, there's no reason why a government actually has to have uh, a military um, in the 21st century. And isn't it Switzerland where every every person um, has to hold a rifle, uh, keep a rifle, and be prepared? Well, so I've heard this. I have again. I haven't researched it in detail. In fact, that wouldn't be the only country which has compulsory national service for every. Um, I think it would be every young male these days because of equality. It might even be every young person, men and women which I think is one of the odd things about equality debates, which say, let's get more women in the army, rather than saying, let's have a smaller army, you know, let's let's not have uh, any women in the army at all, and let's try not have any men in the army at all. So um, I think there probably are a few countries where a lot of people do national service and a lot of them do own weapons, but I, I wouldn't know the details. I haven't researched it. Uh, we've just got a question that's come in, Rod, from blue <laughs> on youtube i love some of these names it says hi rod um would it be fair to say that sale of weapons and domination of colonies now neo-colonies go hand in hand well i'm sure it's it's connected in that um the countries that um try to control uh, uh i have to break this down into parts so if you look at say britain and france and the united states they all three actively in the present day try to control other countries. And so uh, all of the viewers here tonight, I'm sure, will be aware of the recent wars that Britain and America have fought. And France has participated in, in some of those where we've invaded and destroyed Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, Syria and Yemen. And America's invaded and overthrown governments in other countries, too. 
I think there are other countries, and this would be particularly the case with, say, China, where their expenditure has been primarily geared around defensive weapon systems. So you've got America with whatever it is, 800 military bases in the world. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, Sean, where you were asking how many military bases has America got encircling China, and it was in the hundreds. And so China's expenditure is primarily defensive to stop it being attacked by the United States. Uh, and there will be plenty of other countries. So Iran would be in the same situation, I think, where their expenditure is primarily defensive. North Korea, again, would be the same. Any country that might be attacked by the United States because America wants to overthrow their government, they will have military expenditure, but that's not related to colonialism or neocolonialism. That's to, to defend themselves. Among other countries, I often wonder why it is that so many countries, uh, so if you look at, say, Europe and Eastern Europe um, and the, the former Soviet bloc countries, so many are becoming parts of NATO. And when they do become parts of NATO, they their militaries become integrated in NATO. So often they get very similar training so that if a commander from America comes over, they can operate with them. They'll understand all the different sort of command and control structures, the communications technologies, the weapon systems and so on. Uh, but I do wonder why they feel the need to, to have these weapons and to be part of NATO. When Noam Chomsky said just the other day, you know, why does NATO still exist? It should have shut down in about 1989 when the Soviet Union collapsed. There is absolutely no need for this great big military alliance. In fact, because we have this alliance, America tends to go looking for enemies, and then NATO gets used in Yugoslavia, it gets used in Libya, and so on. Uh, and, and now, because of what's happening in Ukraine, America and Britain will be saying to everybody, hey, look, those Russians are scary. Maybe they want to try and recreate the Soviet Union, invade all of Europe, and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, which is exactly the same as they used to say with the Cold War. And lots of countries are falling for it. And they're saying, hey, we've got to increase our weapons expenditure. Um, but but in fact, it's uh, probably I suspect that once once uh, uh, things get sorted out in Ukraine, I think probably other countries are reasonably safe uh, from uh, attack. So to me, it always seems odd that that governments still feel the need to spend so much on uh, on weapons. Yeah, no. Well, Sorry, Paul. NATO is just a front for, uh, I think, US expansionism and uh, and Western imperialism, isn't it? You know, um, and uh, um, my my brother used to be in the, um, he used to actually work as a full timer for the um, the territorial army, but as a, um, a you know, just a, a, he wasn't actually a member of the army. He was just a, a, a somebody who. No, he wasn't a reservist. He worked for them full time. He was an employee, um, and he just he just drove these big vehicles that transported um, armored um, vehicles around and tanks and stuff like that. And he was out in um, Estonia about four or five years ago. There was a massive NATO exercise um, in Estonia, and that you know they're st they're still there, NATO forces along the Estonian border. Um, and one of the things you know that we keep saying is um, you know we don't want um, NATO to be in Ukraine because it's on the border of Russia, but 
you've got these little countries like Estonia that are also on the border with Russia, and yet they are NATO countries. So this, this, this is something that the Russian leadership have been talking about a great deal over the last few years, that they are essentially being surrounded more and more by NATO countries. And America tries to put sophisticated weaponry in each of these countries. And that becomes more and more threatening to Russia. And Russia is quite aware. So uh, I can't remember how much detail we went into when we talked about Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. But Russian people, many of them will remember the 1990s when Western economic advisors tried to destroy their country economically and the standard of living plummeted, loads of people went into poverty, life expectancy decreased. And the Russians really do not want to go through that again. So they are very, very wary of America's intentions towards Russia. It is quite clear what America would like to do is to overthrow the Russian leadership and take control of all of Russia's resources because people forget how enormous Russia is as a continent, easily the biggest in the world, many, many times bigger than any other country. And it's got immense resources. And the Americans and the British and various other um, powerful people in other nations would love to control those resources. And so they, they will have a, a steady long-term goal of trying to overthrow the Russian government. Uh, and so there, there's all sorts of things that they will do to, uh, to advance that goal. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's strange that uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the NATO expansion, which has been going on in eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk and so on, uh, since 2014, nobody, nobody spoke about that conflict in the way that they're speaking about the Ukraine conflict now, because it's Russia who is the bad guy. But NATO was never the bad guy, or America backed NATO, was never the bad guy from 2014. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, so that's just the standard thing that we've talked about in the uh, uh, in the earlier sessions, where the, the mainstream media in the West, and especially organisations like the BBC, are just primarily there to do propaganda for our governments. And so they have a point of view, which is that the British and American governments can do no wrong. And we always have good intentions and we might occasionally make the odd mistake, but we were trying really hard to save the people and to save the world and to be the good guys. And of course, it's never true. And, and so, of course, when things are happening that don't fit with that narrative, which is that a, a puppet that America put into power with a coup in Ukraine in 2014 is slaughtering people uh, in uh, in the eastern part of the country bordering Russia, then, of course, they're not going to mention it. Uh, and the same is true sort of all over the world. You know, while Saudi Arabia is slaughtering people uh, in Yemen and so on, this receives very little mention uh, in, in the mainstream press. And one of the things that interests me is this business, the propaganda in relation to Ukraine has become really immense, and you can see it everywhere. So at my school, my children's school, they've actually got this, oh, let's have a cake and bake sale to raise funds for Ukrainian refugees. Now, I have no problem with helping refugees. I'm all in favour of that. But of course, they never had a cake and bake sale to help the refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Yemen, or any of the other countries that we have devastated militarily. And even more broadly, nobody ever talks about the countries that we devastate economically 
by manipulating their government and putting pressure on them and forcing them to do all sorts of absurd economic policies that enrich us. And, and that causes um, sort of global poverty, which many countries can't seem to escape from because their, their governments are not trying to escape from poverty because they're working with us to keep things the way they are. And nobody ever talks about this. And so all of this is missing from the mainstream media discussions. And do you think there's any way at all in which general members of the public can become informed? And is there any way they can change any of this? Um, so in order to become informed, we have to people have to look at the right websites uh, because there are some outstanding commentators uh, in relation to some of these issues. Now, in relation to Ukraine, it's been easier to find critical commentators than on almost any other um, war because even mainstream American commentators, who would usually be 100% pro-American, are now actually saying, well, I think Ukraine is America's fault. And there's been a few of them. So there's international relations scholars, there's generals and colonels who are advisors to governments, and they're saying this is America's fault. So you can find it. So you have to look for sort of websites uh, such as, if you go to Declassified UK, that's very good. Uh, we talked about some interviews two weeks ago, Sean, on a particular website, The Grey Zone, which has done some very good uh, interviews just lately, uh, and so on. So you can find information about Ukraine. One of the things that I say to everyone sort of every week, which nobody ever believes me when I say this is important, is stop watching the mainstream media. Every single time you watch it, you're basically inviting a person who you know is going to lie to you <laughs> into your house for half an hour to tell you lies and help and make sure that you don't understand what's going on. You know, why would you choose to watch that? But I know that the vast majority of people find it impossible to do that. I was trying to explain this to somebody um, in a sort of class that I was running uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he came back a week later and said, I didn't realize what you meant about never watching the mainstream press. And we talked about how a lot of the time when the news is on, it's kind of there in the background. You know, you're not watching it thinking, oh, I think that sentence was propaganda. I'm not sure about that. That was quite even. What's happening is the information is just there and you're absorbing it without even being aware of it. And you talk to your family and you talk to your friends and your colleagues and your acquaintances. And they all saw the same thing. And when you talk about the stuff, it gets reinforced and you start to believe it over time. And you over your lifetime, you have this kind of mental image in your head that, hey, Britain and America are the good guys in world affairs, aren't they? You're always trying their best. And it's just never true. And you really do have to stop watching it altogether. Uh, otherwise, it just does undoes everything that you've learned by looking at the better websites on the internet yeah um absolutely i mean i stopped watching mainstream media back in 2019 just uh, around the time of the the last election couldn't bear it um so i don't do it anymore don't do it to myself um nick says um he's made a comment here the hypocrisy of the west regarding russia while they're arming the brutal saudi regime who are committing genocide in the yemen along with arming neo-nazis in ukraine it's absolutely abhorrent now the 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 reason why um they're 
arming the Saudi regime is because it was a deal that was done between Nixon, um, Richard Nixon, and um, I think it was Henry Kissinger um, back in the 60s, um, where they um, made this agreement that if Saudi because America was almost bankrupt at the time um, and they needed money. So they made this agreement that the, they would sell their oil um, using the American dollar. Um, so it was like money laundering through the US. And in exchange for that, the US said, well, we will protect you. We will supply you with arms. Um, so that was the deal that was done with that. Um, Rod, I don't know if you want to add anything else to that. So uh, I think probably the period you're talking about would have been the early 1970s, and it was the creation of what was called the petrodollar. And if anybody wants to know about how the petrodollar system works and so on, the best economist I've come across, I've mentioned him occasionally before, is a guy called Michael Hudson. Yeah. And he's, he's written an updated version of this fantastic book, which explains how America rules the world, and it's called Super Imperialism. And uh, if, if people really want to understand how the world works and are prepared to put a bit of time into uh, reading about this stuff, then that, that's a great book to, uh, to get hold of. But Michael Hudson has a very good website and he talks about he's, he's, a, he's an expert on economics, but he's also economic. He's interested in history and he ties economics into kind of geo strategy and so on. And he has some fascinating things to say about how what's going on in Ukraine as much as anything, is an attempt by the Americans to stop Russia and Germany developing really close links, because that's what America really doesn't want, for all of Europe to become really close to uh, to Russia and China. So he's got some fascinating things to say uh, on that, and it's well worth having a look at. Um, uh, and that you'll, you'll learn more in, in reading that sort of stuff than in, in you know watching the BBC all of your life. And if people don't want to uh, to buy the book or they can't afford it for whatever reason, um, then the, if you just put his name into YouTube, Michael Hudson, there's there's quite a lot of videos on the on YouTube um, that he's done, um, which are fascinating, uh, as Rod says. Lizzie, over to you. We're at the top of the hour. We are. We've got a moment over, <laughs> but it's just so fascinating, and of course, it all links together uh, to 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 describe. The situation that we're in is almost farcical if it wasn't so bloody serious and so life-threatening. And, and I, I would just say to everybody watching, please look at independent media. Don't look at mainstream media. Watch our show. Watch other people's shows and get loads of opinions and then make your own mind up. And thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much, Rod. Thank, thank you, Shah. And thank you, everyone in the audience, for watching. Yeah.